that are run by the Fish and Wildlife Service. But um, it's it's mostly open ocean habitat, low low lying sandy atolls that uh, you don't see. There a lot of the islands up there are named after shipwrecks. You because people have didn't even see them before they came upon them, and uh, so they're they're you know, relatively unknown through, throughout the U.S. and throughout even in Hawaii. It's surprising how many, how few people know that that's part of the state of Hawaii that stretches all the way out there beyond Kauai. That must be a challenge as the education and outreach coordinator to not only educate the local island folks that live out there about that area, but the larger populace as well, because we all affect it so much. So tell me a little bit about some of the early inhabitants of these islands. I've read, you know, Polynesians have crossed the Pacific many times. The military's had some time out there. Can you talk a little bit about some of the folks that have lived out there before or used it as a holy place for... Sure, sure. Um, well, I think that uh, the the early Hawaiian, early people first arrived in Hawaii about 500 uh, A.D. and uh, we know from uh, carbon dating and some of the some of the um, archaeological sites on the first two high islands, Nihoa and Mokumanamana, in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, that people probably lived there from about a thousand. A.D. to 1700 A.D. So, for some reason, um, they they left. They had there was some evidence of uh, uh, house house sites and uh, archaeological terraces up there, uh, particularly on Nihoa. Uh, nobody ever lived on the second island of Mokumanamana, but uh, they definitely lived on Nihoa, and uh, they lived there for about 700 years. Um, it's a really inhospitable environment. It's really dry. There's no fresh water. Um, everything smells like bird poop. <laughs> it's pretty. Uh, it would be a pretty rough place to live. But they lived there for 700 years and then just stopped, and we don't know why. That was prior to uh, Western contact in, in the islands. So 1,000 to 1,700 A.D., um, about that later on in that century, uh, Western explorers first discovered Hawaii. And uh, from about late 18, early 1800s to... 1900s, the area had a, well, it was, it was pretty well exploited. People went up there to um, hunt whales. They hunted seals, sea turtles. Uh, there was a, a few small fishing operations up there. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, uh, a lot of people were going to the islands uh, for to harvest seabirds, and they would harvest them by the millions. I mean, there are these amazing pictures of uh, of people harvesting the eggs of the Laysan albatross, of killing the birds for their feathers, for the millinery trade. Uh, and that was that was the first thing that really inspired protections for the area. Um, the, the U.S. recognized that these, area, these islands were being exploited and that the bird populations were dwindling, and President Roosevelt uh, decided to send some military up there to stop this exploitation, and that was the creation of the Hawaiian Island Bird Reservation in the early, early 1900s, 1906, uh, was when, when that happened. Can I ask, what, yeah. what what were they harvesting the eggs for? Laysan albatross eggs, they're huge. They're almost the size of a, a Coca-Cola can, a soda can. And what did they use those for, as well as the birds? Um, they, used the, they used the albumin in the egg for... for um, for film plates um, for, for photography industry, and I, I don't know of any other use that they really had for them. They're not really edible. I mean, it tastes like most seabird eggs aren't uh, aren't very edible. I, I mean, it's interesting. The, the parallel 
a kind of parallel history was going on between the Farallon Islands. Yes, yeah, sounds very familiar with the exploitation. The northwestern Hawaiian Islands, except for, I guess, the eggs that they were harvesting on the Farallons were a little more edible than uh, <laughs> yes. the ones from the northwestern. But they had a similar history of exploitation. Um, but they weren't as much interested in the eggs as they were in the feathers. And also the bird guano. I mean, these islands are... With 14 million seabirds nesting out there, like I said, you get on the islands and it really, really smells of, of bird guano. And um, they harvested that for fertilizer. That was their primary commercial interest in those islands. Fertilizer for gardening for crops on the mainland? Uh, yeah, for the fertilizer industry. I mean, they would, uh, they would harvest tons of high-grade uh, phosphate. Uh, the the bird guano is composed of, uh, of phosphates, and so they would... They would extract that and then process it into fertilizer for agricultural interests in the U.S. and abroad. Mm -hmm. So I take it with some of the Western exploration that there are probably some historical artifacts remaining in the area from accidents, much like shipwrecks that we have here along the coast and shipwrecks along those coral reefs, because I'm sure they're really hard to navigate. Approximately how many shipwrecks do you think are out in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands? I think they know they know about fifty five known shipwrecks in the area. That um, seems like a small amount, actually, for that large area. Yeah, I mean that. But again, this is this is the middle of the Pacific. It's not like it um, it had a lot of commercial traffic mm-hmm. in the area. There were you know there are no harbors in the area. Uh, the mid the harbor at Midway was artificially created, so. Although there was commercial um, traffic going through the area, it wasn't a hot, nearly as high a volume as, say, near Lahaina on the island of Maui, where a lot of the whale whaling vessels came back to port. So there's there was no reason for them to to be hovering around the area. They would there were these industries there, but um, not nearly the kind of traffic that you have going in and out of a large port. Mm-hmm. So is the staff with the Marine National Monument working on any research programs out there? I'm, I'm familiar with a little bit, and I'm wondering if you could share some of that with the listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, well, every year we have a, a few research expeditions that, that go into the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Uh, we have we go up there for monitoring of coral reefs. We go up there for uh, predator tagging and, and large, uh, ape, what they call apex predators, and these are your sharks your large jacks, uh, groupers, and we tag them with uh, radio receivers to try to find out whether they're site-specific or whether they hang out around a particular atoll or whether they travel all up and down the chain. Uh, We also collect uh, fin samples for genetic sampling for similar, uh, similar studies to try to find out whether all these atolls are connected as a single ecosystem or whether they're uh, separated into different parts and need to be managed differently. The, the primary focus of all this research is how to best manage the area for, for protecting it in, in the long run. Uh, all of our research has uh, management applications, and we, we, we try to uh, permit research that, that has management application that will better the, the resource. Uh, that's the kind of research mostly that NOAA is doing, is this marine-based research study of coral reefs, study of uh, algae up there, study of uh, interconnections between atolls and the, and the um, most of the, the fish life. 
but also there's the Fish and Wildlife Service that conducts a lot of seabird surveys and studies up there to look at the health of the seabird population. Also, the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, takes care of, through the Marine Mammal Protection Act, um, protects monk seals and studies monk seals to try to recover their populations. And uh, also, uh, green sea turtles are under the National Marine Fisheries Service. Excellent. We're talking with Andy Collins from the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands Marine National Monument, just recently designated in June this year. I believe we have Claire Johnson on the line. I'm going to see if she's available to talk about her recent um, expedition out there. Claire, are you on the air? Yeah. Hi, Jenny and Andy. I'm happy to be on the air with you folks. And just about a week and a half ago, came back from a 28-day voyage out to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Claire Johnson, folks, is a educator with the National Marine Sanctuary Program and had the opportunity to uh, be a part of this cruise and work with the education um, educators that were involved on this cruise, and I'm hoping she can share a little bit about the mission of the cruise. Yeah, absolutely. We were on the NOAA ship Hi. It's about a 20 or 225-foot research vessel, and I happened to be leading up a five-member education and outreach team, which included myself, and the main mission was uh, coral benthic habitat mapping. So they were trying to do some high-resolution mapping of Curie Atoll, which is the furthest northwestern atoll in the world and in this Hawaiian archipelago. And the uh, two secondary missions, one, as I mentioned, was the education and outreach, and the second one were there was a team of six maritime archaeologists studying some of the historic shipwrecks up in the area. Excellent. We were just talking about that a little bit, actually, before you got on, Claire. And I understand there was a new discovery made on this cruise. Yeah, one of the very exciting things, particularly for a group of educators, where we were basically the second set of eyes to see this shipwreck called the Dunatar Castle. Um, It hadn't been seen or found since it wrecked 120 years ago. And it's actually a pretty historically significant shipwreck because it's connected to the Hawaiian Kingdom. Um, It was fortunate discovery because there were rare and very pristine, flat, calm conditions out at Curie Atoll that they were able to come across this, sort of in a shallow area. And this is nearly nearly a 300-foot sailing vessel that sort of just was filleted out, and in 25 feet of water, you could swim along. It's, you know, 270 feet of this vessel and and see. Uh, it was a pretty amazing experience and a very exciting discovery for the maritime archaeology team. So once they discovered it, um, what took place after that? Did they photograph the Yeah, the they wreck? did some initial survey work on the site. Um, yeah, they do run some transects and take some photographs and video documentation. I imagine that on a future expedition, that may be another one of their sites they'd like to revert, return to. And uh, their next level of survey is doing baseline trilateration, which is laying a baseline through the heart of the shipwreck, and from there starting to uh, map out what some of the significant artifacts are. And and often they do that for ships that they're uncertain of what the shipwreck is. And they did a lot of work at Kerry Atoll on this unknown wreck that the records seem to indicate is uh, the Parker, which was a whaling vessel that wrecked on the reef in 1842. So they some... Now that they know that they're pretty sure this is the Dunatar Castle, I'm not entirely certain what type of surveys they'll do on the next round, but uh, most of the time they're, they're running baseline transects and doing trilateration to get a sense of laying out where the artifacts are. And then they take that information back on the ship and they sketch out these beautiful um, 
maps or charts of the rec site underwater, and that can be used not only for education and outreach, but to further their research and survey work. Excellent. That's super exciting. I hope that we'll be able to keep track of that through the Sanctuary's website. Um, Claire, can you talk about, uh, this is your first time out there, and I'm sure it was pretty exciting. Did you have any moments of, of just pure amazement while you were Ab- in the water? Absolutely. You know, I'm born and raised in the, in Hawaii, living on the Big Island my whole life, and like Andy had mentioned, being a member of the Hawaii, Hawaii community, and I hadn't even heard about these northwestern Hawaiian islands growing up, and just found out about them in the last 10 years or so, and immediately was drawn to wanting to have an opportunity to get out there. And fortunately for me, the opportunity was on this mission. And to see fish that I've never seen in the main Hawaiian Islands and to see them in abundance uh, was pretty amazing. We saw tons of endemic species uh, in Curie Atoll and at Pearl and Hermes Atoll where we were doing our work. We actually conducted quite a few uh, Reef Environmental Education Foundation surveys, which are basically counting fish so that we can give data on the species abundance and diversity. Uh, So we completed 60 reef fish surveys at 13 sites at Curie Atoll. And definitely for me, the highlight was swimming with some of the top apex predators, such as the Galapagos sharks and the white tip reef sharks, Um, the giant trevally, which in Hawaii is known as the, the alua, uh, those were pretty neat encounters. And because the conditions were so flat, calm at Curie Atoll, we had a pretty rare opportunity to do some snorkeling and fish surveys on the outer reef crest, where basically, you know, however many feet out, it starts to drop off where the atoll ends. And we were seeing just large schools of some of these apex predators. We tentatively nicknamed a spot Jackson 5 because we <laughs> saw five types of jacks. Wow. jacks and giant trevally and giant amber jacks and um, on and on and just amazing to be out there with these large predatory fish and and seeing the endemic fish as well. What do you think some of the educators that participate in this cruise will do after this experience? Uh, one of the educators, her name's Patricia Green. She's a NOAA teacher at sea for this expedition and lives in the Florida Keys. She's going to be developing a lot of lesson plan and background material that compares the Florida Keys to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands um, in terms of the coral reef ecosystems and sort of the remote ocean wilderness of the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands as compared to the more inhabited, impacted coral reefs of the Florida Keys. And she had some other ideas of comparing the endangered Hawaiian monk seal to the endangered manatee and the different conservation efforts that are being taken to help protect these incredible species. So there'll be a variety of lesson plans and activities. Um, many of us will be giving presentations at regional and national conferences to, sh- to share the information of the maritime archaeology research and the mapping team's work, as well as our own personal accounts of this unbelievable area that, fortunately for us, is you know becoming better well-known and, and getting more protection. Um, That's a great... Claire, is there a way for other teachers to find out about other opportunities like this NOAA Teacher at Sea programs? Is there a website you Yeah, there, the NOAA Teacher at Sea, I believe, is TAS for teacher at sea dot NOAA, N-O-A-A dot gov, G-O-V for government. And also, if uh, people want to follow along and sort of read some of our personal accounts and read mission logs and in-depth articles and see really compelling imagery, uh, we did have an expedition website that was covering this which can be found at sanctuaries.noaa.gov backslash missions. 
And so I highly encourage educators and just the general public, if this is something you want to see, you can look at some maps and images of these alua, the giant trevally, and the amberjack that we are uh, swimming with and, and the fish data that we collected and such. I actually checked out those logs along this cruise, and I, de- I definitely recommend folks to read these if you have the opportunity. They're really well written and have wonderful photos to go along with it to describe the mission of this cruise. So that's excellent. Claire, thanks so much for joining us um, today, and I'm sure we'll have you on again for yeah, some other Yeah, absolutely. Topic. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and um, I look forward to hearing the rest of you and Andy's conversation online. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Bye-bye. All right. So, Andy, are you still there? Yes. Okay. I want to make sure I got the right line there. <laughs> um, I know that this was an opportunity you, you typically do, and I'm, think, I'm sure Claire is pretty grateful that you had the opportunity to, to let her go as well, um, since you've been so busy with the monument designation. Mm-hmm. We're all going to be vying for that position, you know, at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to just talk about one thing Claire mentioned before we get on a break in just two minutes. She kept talking about um, top apex predators, and I've heard you mention that as well. And can you describe what top apex predators means and how how is that unique in this ecosystem? Sure. Well, probably one of the one of the biggest defining features of the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands is that uh, because it's been relatively untouched, I mean, there have been these periods of exploitation in the past, but for the most part, uh, it's a natural system without human modification. And so the coral reefs there have uh, what what scientists look at as a, a natural distribution of fish species, including predators. Uh, and what that means when you get into the northwestern Hawaiian Islands is that uh, there are a large uh, amount, up to 50% of all the fish biomass in any given area of these large predators. And we're talking like gigantic jacks, 150-pound, uh, what they call lua, which are, which are jack trevallis, uh, as well as sharks and groupers. And uh, these are fish at their apex predators because they're at the very top of the food chain. There's really nothing else that eats them. They, they eat each other, <laughs> essentially. Um, but you get in the water up there, and you're surrounded by these giant fish that have absolutely no fear of you. You're, you're immediately uh, know that you're part of the food chain. And, uh, and when you go to other areas around the world, any other coral reefs, and you don't see these fish. You don't see this, this number of fish, number of large fish, uh, generally because that's the first thing that's fished out uh, when, when humans go into a, a coral reef environment is these large fish. They're highly prized as game fish in the main Hawaiian Islands. So that's one of the big things that's unique about that area, and particularly from a scientific perspective, because it it's one of the few areas in the world that has had such little impact, and so it changes the way that we really think about what are the natural distributions of predators in any environment, in any marine and coral reef marine environment. And uh, so scientists are like looking at this like, wow, you know, they're, they're, this is a natural untouched ecosystem. Look at the preponderance of predators. Why don't we have that in other areas? And so we're starting to look at, use that as a kind of a baseline by which to examine other areas. It's wonderful that there's still an ecosystem like that to compare against, and I'm, I'm really glad to hear it. We want to go back to, um, we were just talking about some of the research and comparing that this ecosystem is amazing 
in regards to the fact we can compare it because of the top predators there to other areas that are, have suffered more from fisheries. Do you, th do you think the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands has, has this as a threat in, it, in its region? Is there fishing taking place in that area? Um, well, there, there is a small active bottom fishery in the area. Um, by small, we're talking about eight vessels. Um, and so as part of the, uh, the part of the creation of the Marine National Monument and the proclamation uh, put forth by the president, it, uh, it specifies a phase-out of over five years of that, of that fishery. Um, other than that, there have been pretty minimal recreational access. I mean, it's very, very difficult to get to this area. Um, it's 140 miles to the first, to Nihoa, the first kind of rock that sticks up out of the ocean from any port. And so anybody that's going up there for recreational access needs to have a, well, first off, a pretty large boat and a lot of gas. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're exposed. You're out in open ocean. So um, the remoteness itself has protected it from fisheries. But in the past, um, there have been... Uh, fisheries up there that have been shown to demonstrate long-term impact. And around the turn of the century, there was a pearl, um, a, there was black-lipped pearl oysters up there, and they were harvest, hit pretty heavy over a 10 or 15-year period. And uh, that fishery hasn't recovered, well, even though it, it basically shut down within within 10 years. Uh, it, it, it only now, 100 years later, is starting to show any kinds of recovery. So. Um, one thing that um, one thing that we do know about the ecosystem, particularly the shallow water areas, is that uh, it, it takes a long time to recover. It's all the nutrients are tied up in living stuff. It's not like uh, it's not like the northeast fisheries or something like that, where you have a lot of upwelling and nutrients in the water. It's generally nutrient poor, and everything's tied up in living organisms. So when you start to impact that, it takes a while for it to recover. That's one thing I do find amazing about that region in general is all those seabirds that are breeding out there. They're really in, in nutrient-poor waters. they really got to fly pretty far to get food for their chicks on the nest. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, they do. They have, they have quite amazing ranges. As you know, the, the albatross travel all the way to Alaska or to the upwelling areas off of the California coast. Uh, just for a lunch run, you know, yeah. <laughs> a couple of weeks, and then they bring food back for their chicks. A lot of the other birds up there do forage in the near shore waters, um, but they're they're not nearly as, like I said, nutrient rich as the the California coastline. So it's uh, food is food is a scarce resource up there. So also, Claire mentioned something um, about endemic species, and endemic species are organisms that exist only in one specific area. There's a lot of endemic species in the Galapagos, and she was saying they were seeing lots of endemic species out at Curry Atoll. What types of species are these? Are these fishes, corals, other types of invertebrates? Well, pretty much everything. Uh, they're just anywhere between 25 Depending upon the depending upon the family or the there's, or the grouping of, of animals there, there's anywhere between 25 and 50 percent of the organisms up there are, are endemic species found nowhere else on Earth. Across the whole ecosystem, uh, it's about 25 percent of all species are endemic, found nowhere else. And the reason for this is because of the isolation of the whole Hawaiian archipelago. Uh, it's taken. For anything to get here and establish itself and reproduce uh, is, is pretty rare. I think uh, prior to human 
contact, they estimated that one species arrived and established itself every 10,000 years uh, because of the isolation. But once they get there and then establish themselves, then they, they speciate out. They, they adapt to their environment and become unique species. And so that's the reason why there's such a high proportion, one of the highest rates of marine endemism in the world in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And you see it in the fish, you see it in the invertebrates, the crabs, and the, uh, the, other, the other species of um, crustaceans and, and everything. And um, so it's, it's very unique and very fragile because of that. It's, you know, the species are irreplaceable. So the, most of these islands, the islands themselves are managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, some of them are also managed by the state of Hawaii. Is that correct? Yeah, the last island, Green Island in Kiri Atoll, is, is managed by the state of Hawaii. It's, it's part of the, interestingly enough, it's part of the jurisdiction of the city and county of Honolulu. <laughs> That's a long per diem there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the rest of the islands themselves are uh, managed by the, the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, but everything up there with the new monument designation is included within the monument, with the exception of Green Island on Curiatol. Mm-hmm. Now, with the the islands themselves, I've read a little bit about them, and there's been invasive species that have been on, and the Fish and Wildlife Service has been very aggressive at attacking, uh, getting rid of those so the native species can come back and survive. How are some of those efforts going, with, um, especially on Laysan Island? I know there's a grass or something that's very um, been attacking certain areas, and now they've eradicated a certain part, and now laysan ducks are coming back. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think I think laysan Island in particular uh, is one of the greatest stories of of restoration to be found anywhere. Um, at, at one point in time in the early early twentieth century, there was uh, people went up there. I said to harvest to harvest birds feathers and to harvest eggs and the guano. Um, they introduced rabbits, which ate every single thing on the island and pretty much turned the whole island into a giant uh, sand-blown uh, spit. Um, almost all the vegetation was erased from the island. And certain uh, after that, other species were introduced, not the native species. And so the island uh, at one point in time was, was really heavily impacted by alien invasive species. And over the course of, uh, wow, decades, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service slowly and methodically uh, removed uh, all these invasive species and, and replanted with native species that they had a fossil record where they, that they were found there. And uh, today, I think virtually all uh, non-native species are removed from the island. The native laysan ducks, which are found, which prior to um, their recent, uh, they... They established another colony on Midway, but prior to that, they were only found on Laysan Island, where at one point they were throughout the entire Hawaiian archipelago. But uh, at the turn of the century, they were only found on Laysan, and now they're they're really healthy. They're doing well. Um, they're but the other endemic species, land land uh, land birds that were found on that island, are all, at the exception of Laysan finch, are all gone. And even even a couple of the species were witnessed by last of the uh, Laysan rail being blown off the island by a sandstorm oh. uh, were witnessed by a Tanager expedition in 1923. So uh, right now, it's, it, the island itself is in amazing shape, um, and the Fish and Wildlife Service has done a, an incredible job at, 
at keeping on top of that and making sure new, no new species are established. One of the, what are some of the ways they prevent new species from getting established? With biologists coming on and off the island from the mainland, I'm sure there's opportunities there. So what are some of the ways they prevent new introductions? Yeah, they, they, they have some of the most stringent biological protocols anywhere. When you go to visit these islands, uh, particularly Laysan and some of the more sensitive areas that don't have any uh, non-native species, you, you have to basically buy all new clothes, uh, that can have never been worn. You freeze them for 48 hours, put them in Ziploc bags, uh, put them into a, a cooler or a five-gallon bucket. Um, that and that's the only thing. Before, right before you get on the island, you change into those new clothes, and that's all you. That's what you wear on the island. Any type of soft material, you you can't. You have to have frozen or new. Um, they're very. That basically prevents seeds and uh, insects from from getting onto the islands. So the, there are these biological controls in place that are that are very stringent about uh, to prevent introduction of non-native species. That's amazing. How about for the water as well? Is there any threat there? If, um, n- oh, yeah. Ships coming through there. How do they deal with that? Yeah. Um, well, the, since the since the establishment of the reserve in 2001 and some of the biological protocols that that NOAA has put in place for the marine environment over the last, well, three or four years, we've instituted things like vessel hull inspections, where before a vessel goes up there, we we investigate the hull, basically scuba dive down and look at it, investigate it for any type of attached barnacles or or non-native or or seaweeds or things like that that might detach themselves and become established up there. Scuba gear is uh, treated in chlorine, uh, chlorinated water solution between the main Hawaiian Islands and the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, but also between areas of the northwestern Hawaiian Islands because we're talking 1,200 miles of, of distance along the whole chain, and there's the potential for introduction between one area and another area uh, by human, what we call human accelerated introduction. So. So we're very careful um, and I try to have these protocols in place to prevent any type of human-facilitated introduction of, of alien organisms. Excellent. That's, that's wonderful to hear. And I think that's just one of the most fascinating things is that we tend to forget how things travel. And it's great to have pro- um, those protocols in place to prevent that from happening. So out at um, Curie Atoll, one thing I wanted to ask before we move on to the land is, isn't the water temperature a little different out at Curry Atoll as compared to the other islands? Is it mm-hmm. isn't it colder out there? And, and oh, how, yeah. why is it colder out there? Yeah, well, you're um, as you move away from uh, Hawaii is uh, even though when people come out to Hawaii they consider it tropical. We're actually subtropical. Um, our waters aren't anywhere near as warm as the Caribbean or places further south. We're actually pretty far north into the into North Pacific, um, but as you move further up the chain into the northwest, those islands are tilting, go moving further and further north into cooler and cooler waters. So when you get out to Kure Atoll, um, that's the that's the most far northerly coral atoll in the world. Um, temperatures there, corals are at the very very edge of the, their ability to deal with cooler waters. And so it's, it's, it's a point which is called the, the Darwin point. It's, it's, a, it's a point at which corals are just barely able to survive, 
and they're barely able to grow at a rate at which keeps them near the surface because beneath them there's this ancient volcano that's still mm-hmm. crumbling and submerging down into the ocean. But the corals are keeping it at the surface. And in places like Midway and Curate, there's, there's rock underneath a coral cap of about several hundred feet of dead coral. And that's the only thing keeping that island near the surface. That's amazing. Yeah. So each of these islands are old volcanoes that have now have coral reefs on top of them that are holding them up basically towards the surface. Right. And once you go past Curie, does the sea floor drop off to deeper, deeper water? Uh, beyond Curie, there's actually a whole string of the what they call the Emperor Seamounts, and this is these are submerged parts of the Hawaiian chain. If you understand the geology of Hawaii, for all the islands form from a hot spot around the Big Island, where we still have an active volcano, and then they drift to the northwest. Once they get past Curie, the water gets too cold for corals to grow, and the islands sink. And so past Curie, there's a whole string of submerged uh, islands and coral at, prior coral atolls. You're looking 30 million years, older than 30 million years, but the, the, they're basically underwater seamounts stretching all the way up to the Kamchatka Peninsula and uh, the Aleutian Trench, where they, again, get sucked down underneath the the plate there and remelted back into magma again. So it's a giant conveyor belt. (laughs) How long do you think Curie has before it starts to go under that uh, conveyor belt? Geez, I I don't know. I I, I don't know what the answer to that one is. Probably not more than another million years or so. I I don't think it would be that much longer than that. So it's fairly slow moving. (laughs) It's not too quick. No. (laughs) Yeah, but the whole the whole chain is moving with the we call it about as fast as your fingernail grows. The whole Hawaiian chain is is drifting to the northwest atop the Pacific plate at about three point two inches per year. Totally imperceptible to to us, but uh but that's about how quick the islands are drifting to the northwest. Excellent. Uh, listeners, you're listening to KWMR in Point Ray Station at 90.5 FM and 89.3 in Bolinas. This is Ocean Currents with Jennifer Stock. I'm talking with Andy Collins from the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands Marine National Monument. Um, Andy, so this is a new designation, and I'm curious what the significance of this is. I've heard many people say this is one of the most monumental acts of conservation, marine conservation, and I'm sure there's a lot still up in the air since it's so new, but what does this mean as far as protection goes from what you've been working on for the last five years? Yeah, well, I think everybody likes to, to quote the president in that it's a, this is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge... Uh, we're, uh, the, area, the northwestern Hawaiian Islands is 140,000 square miles of, of ocean and shallow coral reef habitat. It's larger than the Great Barrier Reef. It's larger than 46 of our 50 states. It's it's a, just a gigantic area that's now protected, and that that is. Um, and we're talking complete protection. I mean, you cannot even go into that area uh, unless you have a permit, or if you're if you're having an innocent passage, basically your passage without interruption, you can transit through the area, but. Um, if you're going into that area to conduct any type of research or do any type of activities, you need to have a permit. So everything is strictly regulated. And uh, to have such a vast area like that, that, that is essentially closed to almost all extractive uses and uh, is, has 
strong protections in place is a is a totally novel concept in our um, in our conservation marine conservation history. Uh, we don't have any other areas of that magnitude um, that that are protected like that, and that's that's a significant step. I think it I think it really shows that you know we're willing as a country to to look at areas and to um, consider areas that we don't um, that were left in, you know, essentially left to nature that that we need those protected areas in order to preserve the health of our oceans in general so from one perspective from the United States it's a gigantic uh, it's a gigantic move it's a gigantic step in that direction but also internationally it uh, demonstrates that you know it's important to have these areas that um, that are preserved for for future generations and for overall marine conservation. It's an amazing example. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's an amazing example. What is the size of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, just to compare? Uh, just slightly smaller than us. <laughs> so you guys are the biggest now, huh? <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it is um, a big deal. I don't know exactly what the size of the Barrier Reef is, but it, it's it's. Um, it, it's a completely different ecosystem. They're they're dealing with very different issues down there. That's a a barrier reef adjacent to you know populated areas, whereas we have mm-hmm. a very remote area, which um, the majority of which is actually very deep sea habitat and totally unexplored. Um, the the northwestern Hawaiians, the shallow water areas, um, is is very small part of this whole ecosystem. We've protected everything from the the abysmal depths down to the bottom of the ocean, all the way up into these shallow water areas. So we have uh, extensive uh, protection across, just across very different ecosystems from these unexplored depths all the way up to the much more more well-known uh, shallow water areas. So one of the things that, um, that we've talked about on other shows here is marine debris, and even though this ecosystem is so intact and so healthy, I'm sure it is not unaffected by marine debris in the ocean, and especially um, drift nets and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about the marine debris uh, program that goes out to clean up these drift nets? Sure. Yeah, there's uh, the, the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands are, are been likened to a a uh, picket fence in the middle of a windstorm in the in the middle of the Pacific. It acts like a rake for all these debris, uh, marine debris, plastics, nets, and such that are swirling around in the the, the uh, North Pacific. And they manage to land on these shallow water areas into the coral areas because it's the only shallow water in for thousands of miles. And they get hooked on the coral reefs. And these are everything from lighters and household trash and household plastics and bottles to trawl nets from fisheries that that we don't even have here in Hawaii. We don't have any type of trawl net fishery in Hawaii. So these are coming from the entire Pacific Rim, from the Alaska fisheries, California fisheries, Japanese, the Korean fisheries. So um, every year we estimate there are about 40 to 80 tons of, of these nets that uh, get transported into the northwestern Hawaiian Islands and hooked on reefs. And so over the last six years, uh, there has been, actually, sorry, there's over the last nine years, uh, there has been a program in place to uh, go up there and remove these nets, uh, particularly because they, they represent a critical entanglement hazard to endangered species like the monk seal and the green sea turtles. 
Um, but the divers go up there for three months at a time, ex- extremely hard work. They go out and they survey for reefs attached to the, uh, for nets attached to the reef. And then when they identify these, then they, um, they dive down, carefully detach them from the corals, and then haul them onto the zodiacs and bring them back to the ship. I mean, it's completely back-breaking work. You're in the water all day long um, in dangerous environment, being chased by sharks. <laughs> um, and, uh, and pulling these reefs up, they removed last year, uh, well, prior to last year, I think we removed 127 tons of nets in one year. Last year they had a little bit of a shorter season and removed about 50 tons of nets. But um, it's, a, it's a severe problem, and, you know, we don't know exactly what the long-term solution is because we can't keep going up there every year and removing these nets. It's very expensive, um, but we need to look at ways to change the way that we um, deal with our rubbish and deal with our trash and deal with our derelict fishing gear so that we can prevent these nets from getting into the environment in the first place. Absolutely. So one thing, we're coming up close to the end of the show, which I feel like we've just started with this topic because I'm so fascinated by these islands. But um, one thing I just would like to ask my guests from here on out for Ocean Currents is, what is the one thing you would like to tell people about their role in protecting the ocean as a whole? Yeah, I, I think the I think the most important thing that I try to get across to people is to you know consider yourself connected to the ocean. I mean, whether you live in Kansas or whether you live on the coast, uh, you are connected to the ocean through 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 rivers that flow into the ocean through um, through gas exchange with the atmosphere. I mean, the, the old. Everybody's connected to the ocean, so consider your behavior when it comes to marine debris. You know, make sure you take care of your trash, because even if it gets into the river, eventually it's going to get down to the ocean, and those plastics can remain in the environment for years. Um, If you do live in coastal communities, you know, make sure to get out and explore your marine environment. So we're terrestrial beings, you know. It's it's, It's hard for a lot of people to really connect with the ocean because of that, but, um, you should make an attempt to get out there and get wet and explore your marine environment and really understand what's what's happening in your nearshore environment and get involved. Uh, there's there's always meetings about how to manage your coastal areas or or um, you know how to conserve rivers that connect to the oceans um, and you know consider yourself as part of the ecosystem and connected to it and and do your part to understand it as well as to uh, to help take care of it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, how about any ways for people to learn more about the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands? Um, there's that book, Archipelago. I was wondering if you could just, we only have a, two minutes left, but can you talk just about some ways people can learn more about this area? Sure. Well, there are lots of great books out. She was mentioning Archipelago uh, by Susan Middleton and David Lichwager. You can get that from Amazon. Uh, that's a good way to explore. Um, also, our website, hawaiireef.noaa.gov, is an uh, excellent way to a lot of resources, a lot of posting from these um, from these research expeditions, so you can connect with the researchers firsthand and what they're doing. Uh, there's also another book called Isles of Refuge by Mark Rauzon, R-A-U-Z-O-N. That's a great his- reference of the histor- history of the area in particular. Um, but there aren't many other many other books that are actually written about the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands because many people haven't been there. Um, but I would start there and uh, and 
next time we have an expedition, log on to the website and uh, and follow it and learn more and ask questions. And, and this is the this new national monument is our is your resource as much it is as it is the people of Hawaii, and uh, it's a national treasure, international treasure. So bear that in mind and learn as much as you can. Thank you so much, Andy. I would like to also tell listeners that on your website there are amazing videos that have incredible imagery that uh, when I watch them I, I am brought to tears because it is so beautiful and so colorful and vibrant and alive and I highly recommend listeners to check out the website Hawaii is Hawaii Reefs is that what it is again? Yep. Can you All one word Hawaii Reef dot NOAA N-O-A-A dot gov. Excellent. Please check those videos out and get a personal, a visual connection with this wonderful resource that is out in the middle of the Pacific and newly protected for future designations. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can touch base again in the future and hear about some of the exciting new discoveries and highlights of the future of the monument. Yeah, well, thank you, Jenny. Thanks for the opportunity. Excellent. I will talk to you soon. Aloha. All right. Aloha. (laughs) Aloha.